You're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Mari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. Is that why you called yourself George the Poet rather than George the Rapper? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the thought process. I remember what that child felt. So what was that? It's all going on in your head. Why was that? Well, that is mind-blowing. Do you guys know this? (laughs) Read this book right now. It weaves that lightness and heaviness just so quickly that you're in both at the same time. Maybe we can have a conversation that is difficult in places, but it's not defensive. It's not combative. I was not expecting you to say that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm able to talk to you for the Financial Times about this because I wrote... Welcome to the second episode of Culture Call. Yeah, thank you everybody for getting in contact with us over the past couple of weeks. It's been awesome. We've gotten a bunch of messages with people that you're suggesting that we talk to, uh, feedback about the last episode. So yeah, we're excited to get going with this season. You can keep chatting with us on Twitter at FTCultureCall or email us at culturecall at FT.com. The new thing that I would like to hear about is whether you are obsessed with astrology, whether you have the (laughs) CoStar app, your interest in rising signs and moon signs, and whether you're using your astrology apps as like a social media network to understand more about how you and your friends relate. Because that's happening to me right now, and it's making me slightly uncomfortable. (laughs) That's quite specific, but you can email us about other things as well. Right, and other things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're open for more than just astrology. Yeah. Uh, Lila, so what have you been doing since we last spoke? What have I been doing? I wrote a profile of Alexis Ohanian, which came out recently. He's the co-founder of Reddit, if you are a person who goes on Reddit. But if you're not, then he's also the husband of Serena Williams, tennis sensation, greatest of all time. Lila, it was an amazing piece. It was a lunch with the FT and it just came out last weekend. Can you explain a bit what lunch with the FT is? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you. Um, (laughs) Lunch with the FT is this like kind of old school, longstanding weekly profile series that we publish every Friday. It has this premise that like a different journalist takes somebody influential to lunch and that person chooses where we go and the FT pays. And then over the course of the lunch, you get to know a bit more about the humanity of the person, right? Like you kind of get to know their story and who they are and you get to know more about who they are based on the food they choose, how they interact over lunch, how much the bill was, stuff like that. So the idea is that you get more from it than you would if you were just like at a press junket right. and you have 20 minutes or whatever. Right, right, right. And so we ate these meatless burgers that are meant to bleed and taste like real beef. They're called Impossible Burgers. They're kind of trending right now. And we talked about how, you know, Reddit is a complicated platform that has like these amazing communities on it, but also has these contentious communities on it that sort of reinforce hateful ideas and uh, how he reconciles that with all the good and worthy causes that he supports. So that was kind of the premise. It's an amazing piece because I think it's so funny. It's so you. I laughed out loud at multiple moments um, and it's also (laughs) extremely informative. I would really encourage everyone to read it on FT.com and we will tweet it from our account. Thanks. I'm glad I made you laugh. No, you did. Honestly, I've like underlined all the funny bits. I love his bit when he's like, okay, give me your question. Right, <laughs> right, right. so right. sinister. He kept like saying no. And then I would be like, well, come on. And then he'd be like, okay, fine. It was like very weird. <laughs> so anyway, what have you been up to? So recently I saw a play at the Almeida Theatre in London called The Doctor. It's like the best thing I've seen in ages. Um, wow. Yeah, it has Juliet Stevenson who... Is actually kind of best known as a stage actor, she, but she has done some film things, including Bend It Like Beckham, um, if you ever saw that, or yes, Truly Madly Deeply with Alan Rickman. Who was she in Bend It Like Beckham? She was Keira Knightley's mum, oh. and she's so good. She's an extremely versatile actress because she can play amazing comic roles like that, and also these very nuanced, kind of more serious parts, which she was playing in this play. Cool. It's, it's about medical ethics, but it's actually about loads of other stuff. There's all these threads in it that kind of intertwine about privilege and prejudice and religion, kind of faith versus medicine. There's lots in it about love and grief and loss. It's basically about everything that a play <laughs> should be about, but without trying to sound like a play that's about everything. Um, cool. Which I kind of still I've been thinking about it a lot and I still don't know quite how they pulled that off but 
it was really kind of wonderful and invigorating. So if people are in London, I do recommend going to see it. When you left the play, was there one thing that you've been thinking about since? Yeah, good question. Um, I guess one thing I was thinking is that, you know, it takes a long time, a relatively long time to make a film or a TV series or even put an exhibition together. But actually theatre, which is this kind of ancient form, is quite responsive and quite fast, relatively. Mm. Um, And this play dealt with a lot of the kind of quite thorny arguments around wokeness and speech and, um, you know, the idea of, like, how much should identity play into how we respond to people, uh, the kind of treatment that we give different people, and all these questions, which the debate around them often is just unnuanced and somehow this play managed to deal with all of that stuff really kind of carefully. Sounds great. Mm, Yeah, it was. (laughs) Later on in the show, we have our colleague Neville Hawkeye coming by uh, and he's going to talk about all these wild scientific developments that have happened this year that we probably missed because we're not scientists. And they're mostly (laughs) about like human evolution and space exploration and things in those fields that have totally exploded what we already knew. But before we get into that, a few weeks ago, the podcaster and musician George the Poet came into the FT studio in London for what turned out to be an extremely powerful conversation, I think. Yeah, it was really like blew me away, honestly, Grizz. You know, I didn't know much about George the Poet when you suggested we bring him on the podcast. I knew he opened Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding uh, with a poem because, like, I and the rest of the universe watched that wedding. Um, (laughs) And I was very, like, moved by the poem. And uh, and since you've interviewed him, I've listened to his podcast. It's unlike anything I've ever heard before. Mm. So the reason I want to talk to him is... We've been thinking about people who are pushing culture forward in some way, shifting culture. Yeah. And George the Poet was someone who came into my mind when we were having these conversations because I think what he's doing with his podcast, which is called Have You Heard George's Podcast, um, is is actually quite incredible. He's he's a rapper, a spoken word artist, as well as being a podcaster. And he sort of came onto my radar uh, a few months ago when he won, I think, five gold prizes at the British Podcast Awards. So suddenly everyone was listening to his podcast and talking about his work. Mm. And Have You Heard George's podcast is telling the story of where he grew up, um, the kind of the particular conditions of that, the highs and lows of kind of everyday life and the way that life intersects with what people who don't live in those communities Um, might hear about on the news. So gang violence and police brutality, single parent families. And what he's doing in the podcast that's so engaging and so different, I think, is the way he moves really kind of seamlessly and skillfully between the past, the present, the future. He's mixing um, techniques from kind of dramatization with documentary with music yeah and he speaks most of it in verse actually which you don't always consciously realize your your ear just kind of tunes into it and it's very beautiful very masterful um it's also very funny in places and very playful my name is george the poet but right now i'm uncle george watching my nephews play with their friends I'm 20 years older than these kids and I'm imagining what the next 20 years will be like for them. Some of them will obviously be dead. Some in jail. Some sitting right here watching their own kids asking the same questions. People get uncomfortable when you talk about children like that. Like there's a cause and effect relationship between the things we say aloud and the way the future pans out. Like, these negative prospects are less likely for our children if we don't acknowledge the current reality. Maybe words really are that powerful. Or maybe that's just a story we tell ourselves to imagine power into existence. Everything you know is a story, an idea that you've accepted until the day you cross it out and replace it with a better answer. When I was in school, there was a planet called Pluto. Turns out there's not. I mean, Pluto's still there. It's just not a planet anymore. 
Personally, I have no opinion on Pluto because I wasn't there at the time. But when it comes to this beautiful, resilient, overlooked, traumatized community, I got skin in the game. I got 27 years of experience. So no matter what stories come up in the papers about our trigger-happy gangland or our state-dependent single mums, I remember everything firsthand. Grizz, you interviewed George about what he's doing with his podcast, but in the process he also touched on so much more. I mean, it really got quite emotional. Yeah, much of our conversation was around the climate around race in London and the UK at the moment and the role that George sort of feels that he should play to draw attention to it. So in inner city communities right now, we're seeing the huge rise in, in violent crime and particularly knife crime. And the government here is really perceived to be out of touch on this issue. It recently launched this campaign called uh, Hashtag Knife Free, where it put messages in takeaway chicken shop boxes. Whoa. Uh, you know, this was seen, uh, understandably, as offensive and patronising. It was playing into stereotypes about people of colour while not actually addressing the root causes of the problems. So these are the kind of issues that, you know, that might have been on George's mind when he came into the studio. And I guess that's why, you know, despite all of his success, you know, when we did sit down to talk, you know, rather than being celebratory, the mood was more reflective in the room. Yeah. Um, Before we get into it, I also just want to say that he says so much in every sentence, like every sentence is just like chock full of knowledge. So this interview really deserves a careful listening. Yeah, completely. Okay, let's get into it. So, George, thanks for coming on the podcast. Not at all. Thanks for having me. So last year, you released this groundbreaking, multi-award winning (laughs) podcast. I'm interested to know where the passion that's so evident in it, where did that come from? Hmm. I would say that my podcast is an immersive listening experience. Ultimately, I'm trying to establish a narrative around the nature of some of my community's challenges. These have been on my mind since I was a child. I grew up in the inner city black community of northwest London. I was from an estate or a housing project, and um, my area was often associated with unemployment, crime, low educational achievement. And growing up, you know, from the age up to about 10 years old, I was completely unaware of this. But then I went to a school that was physically far from my community, but also ideologically different from anything I'd encountered before. I was met with a predominantly middle-class cohort who had all of these things that they'd heard about my kind of environment, about social housing, about what the life was like. And that, at the age of 11, invited me to start explaining myself. Hmm. But before I ventured into that environment, I was completely unaware that this was the external perception of my community. My community is predominantly black. To this day, the estate is 46% black against a national average of, I think, maybe 4% of the country is black. Mm -hmm. So I was unaware of how black I was and how that informed the social exclusion that I would transition through at different stages of my life and I'm I'm still grappling with today. And... Like a lot of 11-year-olds, what they want most is to sort of fit in and conform. And I wonder if they're posing questions like, where did you come from? What was it like growing up? Was that a burden? It wasn't a burden because I was proud of where I came from and I'd love to explain that to people. And there was also this weird thing, which is pretty much a universal feature of both youth and more specifically middle-class youth. There's an admiration and adulation of the working-class black experience and this fetishization. Wow, that's a difficult word. Fetishization (laughs) of the um, inner-city black experience, which I was proud to be able to guide them and inform them on. I was conscious that that's a responsibility. Mm. And by the time I was 15, I began rapping. And I don't know if it's because I was young or it's because I was black in the inner city, but... So much about that form of expression seemed liberating to me. I like cars a lot, got the same love for them cars that my father's got, but most cars are second hand, been around for a minute, second hand. So you don't know what they've been through, and it's hard to get the facts. 
Yeah, they might look good, but any car can get a wax. Anyway, I like cars a lot. Whenever I pass a shop with reflective windows, I slow down and make a man pass. But here's the problem with second-hand cars. You don't know what they've been through. Kind of like people. And then you went to Cambridge University and you stopped rapping and started poetry, or at least you were reading your poems or performing them without the music. Mm. Can you tell me about that and also if there are any differences between rapping and poetry in that sense? As far as I was concerned and as far as I still am concerned, I have never seen a higher form of lyricism, wordplay, intention, social commentary and art than what I have seen in rap. So I always had that respect for rap, but I was rapping as a grime artist. Now, grime is a homegrown genre that comes from communities like mine, predominantly young people expressing anxieties about their environment. Might come across as bravado, might come across as aggression, but grime was youthful in energy. And part of that youthfulness is that you perform rap to music of a tempo which is really rapid, especially if you're not accustomed to listening at that speed. So we found ourselves speaking really fast and it's very heavily reliant on our dialect. And I knew that transitioning from my estate to Cambridge, that would be a communication barrier and I want to ensure that I am understood. You've got to bear in mind I'm the only black man in my cohort on campus that year. So I was very conscious of the responsibility, the custodianship of our narrative, mm. that I didn't want to present myself as a gimmick. So I made the conscious decision to present my work more conversationally without fast-paced music, and it became poetry. And is that why you called yourself George the Poet rather than George the Rapper? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty straight. And also by that time, I was frustrated with the circular narrative within the art form. So we were going through very serious things that I still see many young people in that environment going through today and that after a lifetime of listening to hip-hop, I was also conscious that many people in inner cities across the Atlantic were going through similar traumas. But because of this youthful space in which we used to express ourselves, we were unable to really advance the conversation beyond the same level of analysis and reflection and we were at times unwilling to step outside of our comfort zone and challenge ourselves to drop the bravado man to drop the act and to really try and advance in our commentary there's a word that you use a lot in the podcast which is mission that that you have a mission here yeah. can you explain what that is with this podcast in particular so by the time i got to cambridge i was sick of my community i'd seen so much and i understood so much that not only was it invisible in the mainstream media, it was very hard to articulate because there wasn't a wealth of academic literature on our experience. Mm. So I was left to figure it out and understand it myself. Cambridge gave me that space. Everyone there was insanely dedicated to their study. I do appreciate having been in an environment where passion for what you were learning took primacy. And that allowed me to reflect on the condition of my community. And because I was studying sociology as well, it allowed me to become scientific about our condition as opposed to purely anecdotal, purely personal, because I was embittered, which Cambridge gave me the space to realise. And also, I was quite lonely in Cambridge. The demographic wasn't what I was used to. I'm not the kind of person that shies away from cultural difference. I embrace it. But after a while, it felt like I had to do more work than the average person mm. just to get involved in a conversation, to laugh at the same jokes, to understand the same references. You felt lonely there. I felt lonely. And what that encouraged me to do was stay in my room and write poetry, which wasn't such a bad thing. I remember posting my first poem online. It was called Powerless, and it is a tire, it's a rant. And someone, a well-meaning white girl in my college... I put this on YouTube. It's the first time I put a poem on YouTube. She pulled me to one side and she said, I saw your poem. It's, uh, it gave me a lot to think about. I think, however, you are in danger of feeding into very destructive narratives for your community. And what she was trying to say is there are a lot of white people that will use you as an excuse to discredit and turn their back on and reject the experience and the trauma of your community. 
this was the first time I'd ever been, because I didn't grow up with white people like that. Mm. This is the first time this was presented to me. I was used to performing to young black males who knew exactly what I was talking about. How did you feel when she said that to you? My first reaction was defensive. I was just saying, you just don't understand. But she really meant well. Yeah, I mean, she might have meant well, but also, why is it on you? Yeah. So why is it on me is a fair question, but this is an unfair world. And the reality is that it is on me. I really need to demonstrate to the creators from my demographic, from my community, that there are different ways that we can package our story that mean that we don't have to mindlessly pander to market forces that might encourage us or nudge us down familiar, easy territory, lazy commentary on the nature of our struggles that just rehash arguments that were established in the 1990s from the first pioneers of hip-hop. So I'm saying to my rap contemporaries, Mm -hmm. we not only have the option and the opportunity to get really creative about our story, we have the responsibility. And it is not fair, but life is not fair. There's a line that struck me in the very first episode, I think, of the podcast, where you say, telling your own story is the key to survival. Right. Is that the thing that underpins this project? 100%, unequivocally. Right now, much of our community, the black British community, is undergoing a wave of violence among our young people, murderous violence and the government's response to this has been to commit a hundred million pounds to the police force the same police force that we have historically had a traumatic relationship with that have demonstrably lied about us the same police force that has paralyzed one of my childhood friends his name is julian cole the same police force that searched me for weapons when i was sitting outside of my parents' house after a great show just last year, only a month after I opened the royal wedding of Meghan and Harry with a poem of my own. So instead of a fraction of that money going towards a better articulation of this trauma, we have to grit our teeth and accept, we we have a collective consensus that we're just going to have to accept the police are going to come down hard on all of us because the police do not have the intel to really form a more informed approach. And what that is symptomatic of is the fact that our narrative is not in our hands. One of the things I was thinking, to what extent is this podcast for, for example, the police to hear? Like, I'm interested in how you conceive of the audience, who it's for. There's a point where you talk about we, and then you talk about you, the audience, and it seems like the idea is to kind of communicate the place where you came from, the culture where you came from, to the audience. I mean, I don't know whether this is my interpretation as like a very white, very middle-class listener, Mm. but I'm interested in who you feel the listener is. So this podcast was not audience-driven. What I did was try to construct a conversation of the nature that I haven't heard before, and I did that out of a personal desire. Also, I'm an artist, so there are things that I wanted to achieve artistically. Now, because I have never been able... I've never wanted, I've never been inclined to apply my art to anything other than the commentary on my community. It came about that the podcast ended up being a very artistic exploration of the community. Where it first started, the genesis of this idea was the thought that there are young people that really would love to keep up with the news, would love to keep up with political commentary in this country. But because the mass media in general is a very white middle-class industry the nature of commentary on current affairs it has a certain tone so I thought to myself it would be refreshing it would be helpful to young people that were in my position if they could hear it in their accent that was my first thought Mm. and eventually I discovered that there was no better muse than my community and why a podcast so in 2013 I was signed to a record label uh, universal music because I can rap and because I was a musical poet. Less than two years later, I walked away from the record deal. I felt like institutionally, the incentives behind the sale of music would not necessarily prioritise the social agenda that I presented to my music. And what I found, one of the many challenges I found, was that the three-minute to five-minute song structure with verses and choruses 
didn't give me enough space to elaborate the arguments. I wanted it to be as elaborative and explorative as possible, and podcasting was the only thing that would give me that space. There's a bit at the beginning which I understand was recorded live where you ask people to put eye masks on. Yeah. Is that so that you're completely focused on the audio rather than the visual? Exactly, exactly. I had done the music thing in which you stand on the stage and you deliver your charisma and I enjoy that, but I also don't like repeating myself. So I wanted to do something different <laughs> mm. that would enhance what this experience uniquely is. There's something very intimate about it. Mm, yeah, it's in, I always say to my staff and my family, I'm going for the living room experience. If I can just get every single listener to feel how they feel in their living room, then maybe we can have a conversation that is difficult in places, but it's not defensive. It's not combative. In the podcast, you pose this question about leadership or companionship. I wondered if you could explain what that sort of opposition is, if it is an opposition. Well, in the situation that I'm currently faced with in my community, so I'm from an estate called St Raphael's Estate. In the past 10 days, two young people have been shot dead around the estate within minutes from my parents' house and minutes from my nephew's primary or elementary school. The nature of these conflicts, which you won't see in the news, is very much like a family feud. And it's not blood familial ties, it's uh, blocks, it's people that have grown up together who are holding grudges over previous murders. And it just occurred to me this morning that this violence is always described as senseless violence, and that is such an insulting phrase. Violence is violence. It's rarely senseless Sometimes it is unpredictable, but unpredictable to whom? It's senseless if you don't understand it. Exactly. And the treatment of the violence as senseless and just a simple case of inner city thuggery is insulting and is something that we need to rub out. Anyway, the nature of the conflict is family feuds and I'm affiliated, I'm implicated in these feuds because of where I live, because of who I know, because of pictures on my Instagram, right? So... I'll be honest with you, on the cab here, I didn't expect it. I never cried, but I just broke down in tears. The reason my eyes are kind of red right now. Because it's slowly starting to sink in that I really should engage my community about funeral preparations. We need to have a really mature conversation because what happens is these young people die unexpectedly. One of The last person to get shot in the community was not involved in anything. He was just coming home from work. It was a case of mistaken identity. He's not coming back, right? Now, I'm also conscious that my advocacy of peace makes me a target because what follows peace? Justice. So the perpetrators of, of, of violence who have things to defend and things to hide have, if they're clever, they will identify in me an opportunity to either create a smokescreen by enacting violence on me, which will piss off a lot of people in my community and just get everyone fighting, or they will remove me from the equation. Now, in that situation, what do I do? Do I quietly go around to different families and express, you know, and offer my companionship? Do I quietly, behind the scenes maintain my relationships and try and encourage people to back down and engage in backdoor diplomacy? Or do I tackle the issue head on when I'm talking to the Financial Times? You know, So this is the leadership versus companionship? This is the whole thing. Debate, yeah. Unfortunately, however, as I tell my little brothers all the time, especially as a black person, no one is going to save you. And what I mean by that is my life is in danger regardless. But so is I'm standing in solidarity with the next young person who will who will die possibly before the end of the month, definitely before the end of the year. I'm trying to stand in solidarity with them. No one is going to save us. And that is a very profound realisation for me because when you really think about it, there's nowhere in the world that you would expect to see white bodies strewn along the street, you know. That would fly in the face of what these white countries and white institutions have been able to build right a, a, a certain solidarity and institutional consensus that we take care of our own black people don't have that black people don't have that in their home countries let alone the countries that they migrate to and the communities that they reside in within those countries so ultimately leadership appears to me to be my only option 
And I'm wondering whether, I mean, you say in the taxi here that you were crying, um, the backdrop to your day-to-day, -day, I mean, not the backdrop, the foreground is what's happening, that these guys have died. I mean, traversing these worlds of the estate coming here into the studio, I mean, you played at the Royal Wedding. It seems like you're constantly traversing these different worlds. Mm. Um, what's... Like, is there an emotional toll in that? There is. That's what I realised in the, in, in the taxi on the way. I was thinking, why am I crying? I know everything that is making me cry. I've known it for time. I've known it for ages. And I realised it's like, oh, you can't, you can't live like this. It's not sustainable. It's not. You weren't supposed to. You could have been folk. You could have been dedicating your life to clean energy, right? You could have been an astronaut. Mm. You might have been doing something different if you weren't presented with, the, with these circumstances. So even though I'm engaged in very healthy business, even though I have great connections, I've got a great network and I've got great prospects moving forward, I'm not okay and no one's going to save me. Do you feel like you have to present different versions of yourself in different contexts? I do feel like I have to present different versions of myself in different contexts and I've had to do that since I was 11 years old. It's not an ideal way to live. That's why I I can't afford to approach the second instalment of my podcast from an audience-led perspective because what's happened now, since I've been fortunate to win as many awards as I have done at the British Podcast Awards, I now have a keen middle-class following that is very eager for the next instalment. And if I allow myself to be driven by that understanding, then I might unconsciously pander or bend my message towards just in little things just in whether or not in, in my choice of language am I going to use language that the streets will understand or that the intelligentsia will react to right these micro decisions that I have to make along the way will be colored inevitably by what I imagine the audience is but beyond that what I am envisioning is that I will be able to demonstrate to my community to my peers, to my cohort, that there is a way to exist that can simultaneously make sense to everyone and that can reconcile all the tensions about who you are, all the things that we just we just weren't engaged on. No one, no one talks about who we were before this. Why this? Why is it the case that in the inner city of Brooklyn in New York, they're going through the same thing in my inner city and, and they happen to be black. Why is it the case that the entire continent of Africa is in economic disarray by some measures? Why is, why is it the case that there is complete statelessness for the black man? Why are we all starting from scratch despite inheriting a wealth of art, literature and expression that is crying out for the same stuff? Why? Right? So I am presenting that in a way that will make sense across the board. And that's like a huge undertaking. Mm. Um, and something you just said is that, you know, I was asking you about traversing all these different worlds and presenting all these different versions of yourself. Um, and you said, like, it's not okay. Mm. I, I just read this book um, called Queenie by okay. Candice Carty-Williams, who's a black British writer. And one of the themes in that is like mental health. Mm. and talking about mental health, particularly within the black community. Mm. Is that something that you think about? I do. It's something that I've started to think about more and more recently. Obviously, in recent years, our conversation around mental health has evolved somewhat. And I do realise that, as you said, there are things that we all accept as part of the black experience that are not healthy. And because we haven't grown up thinking of these things as optional, you can't simply shrug off your blackness. You can't hang it up. You can try to, and you might be able to find a circle of friends that will allow you and help you to. But, you know, the police will stop you and just remind you who you are. You know, the government will completely overlook you. What does this tell you about the way this country really feels about you? These things are not okay. These are burdens that you have to carry whether or not you want to be black whether or not you want to self-define as, you know, a politically black person. You just want to be a person. Don't quite have that luxury, and that takes a mental and emotional toll. How do you deal with that mental and emotional toll? I write. And writing is the release. Writing helps. Mm. People listen. I have the privilege of speaking to you. 
and you're interested and you actually want to know. But if I, because my first plan when I was in Cambridge was that I was going to become an MP. Oh. If I went the, mm. the route of other black people from the black community who have tried to make headway, to what extent would I be able to speak candidly and unapologetically about this condition? It would, it would, it's just completely unworkable. Demographically, we do not have the numbers to create the groundswell support that that would need to lead to anything of consequence in government. We can't influence an election. You know, like, like I said, another young person in my community is going to die before the end of the year. Perfectly healthy now. They're not going to die in a freak accident, but they will predictably die under conditions that have historically remained constant and we can't even accumulate the political momentum to do anything about that. And I am able to talk to you about this because I wrote. Did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Was it like you were a writer before you felt political as a child or did the two mm -hmm. things come hand in hand? My development as a lyricist and a writer was in tandem with my development as a student. I would be in lectures in Cambridge and I'll be finding things out that I felt like were little secrets, little clues as to who I was and why we were in the situation we were in. And I couldn't contain myself. I was constantly tweeting throughout lectures. Like, <laughs> did you guys know this? <laughs> Read this book right now. <laughs> yeah, so one hand washes the other. Can I ask you about season two of the podcast? Sure. Do you have plans for it? What oh, yeah, I'm working. I'm making it already. Yeah, it's um, season two is going to be even more personal. So it's going to explain a little bit more about what brought me to this point. Season one was like a series of provocations and abstracts, just notes that I've been accumulating over the past few years, right? And I'm just getting more experimental about the form. It's interesting that you say you're working on the sound because season one sounds so different. And this is one of the things that I think has really gripped listeners and I wondered whether you had a sense, like a conscious desire to produce something that sounded different or whether you were just making something that sounded how you wanted it to sound. That's a great question. I was very much inspired by Disney, by the thought process of the man huh. and the legacy of the movement. I took my nephews to Disney World a couple of years ago and I just suddenly remembered how much I loved, loved Beauty and the Beast, the film growing up you know I, I watched that before I could talk yet when I hear the music I remember the thought process I remember what that child felt that child is still here so what was that why was that and I resolved to create an audio experience that emulated the wonder and recording the podcast I was like oh I can be the architect in your mind I can create anything and then visiting the approach of the man Walt Disney. He was very technical. He was very hands-on. He, he wasn't just in the clouds thinking, imagine if there was a talking mouse. He was like, what technology would be required to get us to this place? And he wasn't necessarily the expert on anything. He didn't get to finish school. But he knew how he felt about things and what would have blown his mind. And he was eternally fascinated. So I channeled that. That was the biggest inspiration for the podcast. I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, because I can see where all that magic and that wonder and that kind of, um, you know, it's like a fabric of sound and different bits of music and storytelling mm. all coming in together. Mm. I mean, I have, like, just so many questions to ask you, but I realise that you don't want to spend, like, the whole day in this studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. I'm not... I was at a barbecue the other day. A friend of mine graduated... And you know, like I, this murder's been on my mind a lot recently mm. and I didn't want to be there as happy as I was for her. I didn't want to talk because all I wanted to say is what you've allowed me to say here. So thank you. Final question from me. Your podcast has a quite straightforward, unassuming name. <laughs> Why that decision? Same reason I'm called George the Poet. I'm tired of the gimmicks. I'm, I'm, this is not a sales pitch. This is it. I came up with the title before I made a single episode of the podcast, but I knew what the intention would be. I couldn't say uh, George's Street Chronicles. I couldn't say George's, the dissertation George never did. I could have easily called it these things, right? But what I wanted was a person-to-person -person intimate engagement. I wanted your sister to call you and say, 
Have you heard George's podcast? George, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you for your time, man. <laughs> After listening to George's podcast, I wrote a lot of people in my life saying, "Have you heard? Have you heard George's podcast?" <laughs> that was such a such a fascinating interview, Grizz. Like, I would love to hear what struck you most about George as you talked to him. It's hard to say what struck me most. I mean, you know, it's. I think my favorite interviews is where I meet them and they're kind of really up for it somehow. They want to talk. They they've got something that they they need to say. Yeah. Um you know, he said there's a reason why George wanted to come into the Financial Times and talk about his work and talk about his life. Um you know, even when people he knows are dying and people he knows are preparing for funerals, um all of this stuff is happening and yet he's still you know, there's something that's driving him to kind of to talk about to talk about it, um, mm-hmm. to, to get it out there. But and there's a kind of catharsis as well. I found like he he wanted he wanted to speak about this stuff, um, and for me, that was a huge privilege. Yeah, you know, people want to be interviewed for so many different reasons, and a lot of times um, they come and speak to us to just to promote their thing. Mm. But this felt different, like it was genuine you know he was there to expose our listeners to the sorts of things that are weighing on him to allow us to empathize Mm. and and hopefully have those things start weighing on us too like this should be weighing on all of us completely you know the stuff that he's wrestling with is um is not only very difficult and very deep but it's also in lots of ways you know quite contradictory like in his podcast this idea that kind of trauma and joy you know, they they all exist together. Um, it's not one or the other. It, it really made me think, actually, listening to him in the studio, that, that so much art that's about black experience, you know, especially music like the blues, you can't separate pain and joy. They right. they can't be neatly kind of passed from each other. Um, it, yeah. It's like it's both of those things at the same time. Yeah. And there are these moments where he's like, Come on, let me bring you, you know, like listeners who may not be into this type of rap. Let me bring you in. Don't fast forward. You're going to like this. Like, let me tell you why this is the Mm. only release that my community has. Yeah. I love it. And then he starts singing, you know, and he starts like rapping along and and then you're into it. Mm. It weaves that lightness and heaviness just so quickly that you're in both at the same time. Completely. Also, listening to the Black British experience is really eye-opening. Like, George spoke about how there are so many parallels to the Black American experience of, you know, somebody living in Brooklyn to living in London. And I can't pretend to speak to the Black American experience, um, but we obviously have a history of systemic oppression, and it's only being laid more bare. And meeting George, which is what I felt like I did, even though I didn't meet him, but listening to him, that gave us all the opportunity to listen. And for white people, that's often more important than speaking. So at the FT, we have a series running at the moment, and it's called Masters of Science. It's a series that runs every summer, and uh, it talks about all the amazing new developments that have happened in science over the past year. So this year, we have organ transplants. We have extraterrestrial life. We have synthetic intelligence. We have something called nanobrains, which sounds really (laughs) gross, but is apparently very important. And our colleague Neville Hawcock is here to talk about it. Yeah, so Neville is the acting deputy editor of the FT magazine, and he is the person who has really overseen the series. He basically has a bird's eye view of these six different scientists and their work and the pieces that they're writing, and they're sort of scattered around the world. So he's the person that's talking to all six of them and really just making sure that their work can be understood by non-science people like us. Yes, so he is our translator. Um, He has picked the two stories that he thinks are craziest. Um, And we like this because pieces like this are really a relief from the news cycle. And uh, these stories don't get crazy coverage, and they're like kind of upending how we understand kind of everything. Um, So it's super cool. We're thrilled to have him on. 
Neville, welcome to Culture Call. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, Neville, the first piece in the Masters of Science series is by Chris Stringer, who's a human origins specialist at the Natural History Museum in London. And he's written this piece about essentially where we come from. The point that he's making is that the story that we were telling for a long time has changed quite drastically because of some some recent discoveries. Can you explain what those are and how it has changed the story? Yes, about 15 years ago, experts in human origins thought they had a pretty clear picture about how modern humans had evolved. Mm. And in the past 15 years, there have been fossil discoveries and new techniques of DNA analysis that have completely changed that picture. Fifteen years ago, it was thought that there was an ancestor type of human, and that evolved into two different types of human. There was Homo sapiens, Mm -hmm. which evolved in Africa, and is basically us. And the other type of human was Neanderthals. They lived in Europe. And over time, the Homo sapiens us supplanted the Neanderthals Mm -hmm. and here we are today end of story over the past 15 years they have found fossils that indicate that far from Neanderthals being completely supplanted by modern humans they interbred wow (laughs) yeah I'm not I'm not all homo sapien I am part Neanderthal yeah and I'm not I'm not having a tilt at you in particular that's that's (laughs) true of all of us we are all of us about two percent Neanderthal which is a surprise discovery which no one knew about uh, 15 years ago what were the discoveries that led us to realize that um, homo sapiens and Neanderthals were not all there was one of the earliest ones was I think in 2004 in an island in Indonesia they found evidence for a diminutive type of human, which uh, the press nicknamed the Hobbit because uh, it was so small. (laughs) Neville, does diminutive human, is that just like a euphemism for short person? I will tend to use more syllables uh, where I possibly can, (laughs) so uh, I guess I'd hesitate to use the word, yeah, short human or dwarf. (laughs) Yeah, we could just settle for Hobbit, which is just more fun all around. Yeah, let's go with (laughs) Hobbit. Um, That's so interesting. You know, I'm thinking about when I was a kid going around natural history museums and learning from that about sort of early human evolution. Do all of those now need to change based on what we know now? Like, like are kids now going to be learning a totally different lesson in evolution? Yes, I think it's, uh, you know, been revolutionized. It's basically like finding out that you're dad or your grandma had a half-brother or half-sister and there's a whole other branch of the family that you never suspected and they're, you know, scattered around. It's that sort of surprise, I think. Mm. I also noticed that the piece had a really amazing response online. Like, readers loved it. I'm wondering why you think that was. I mean, what was that that saying about this piece in particular? I mean, other than that, it was fascinating and eye-opening but and, and well edited too, and extremely well edited probably, probably the phrase you were groping for that's there. what it i was, was looking um, for <laughs> yeah well i was struck by the response to it and i was really pleased to see it i think what makes this stuff appealing is that it's a disinterested pursuit of truth yeah. you know these people are to the best of their ability honestly trying to find out about the way the universe is and the way we are and the way our bodies work and I guess there's a kind of humility in the face of the facts that is quite refreshing there. Uh, That's particularly if you spend a lot of time reading uh, comment pages (laughs) in any newspaper, I hasten to say. (laughs) And so something that's completely other than that, that's presented by experts with the aim of enlightening... Even if you have to go 150,000 years into the past, it's a nice, makes a nice change. <laughs> There's something kind of awesome in the real sense of the word awesome about this idea that there's so much we don't know and that these are experts, but also they're having to revise the story that they're telling and the, the knowledge that they have sort of constantly because, as we were just saying, this these discoveries are quite recent. Mm. And there was another piece in the series about extraterrestrial life and the possibilities of life existing sort of not on Earth. And it seems like that's another example of how much we don't know. Yeah, these scientists are writing about stuff that has only been discovered recently, really. Mm. So in the case of the extraterrestrial life piece, that's by Lisa Kaltenegger. She is an astronomer at Cornell University. And the piece is writing about how, back in the 1990s, the probe Voyager 1, as it whizzed out of the solar system, took a snap of all the planets, including the Earth. Mm. It's a tiny, tiny 
blue dot. It was like a twelfth of a pixel in size that the, the probe was so far away. And at the time that picture was taken, as far as we knew, that was it for planets. And since then, in the 30 or so years since then, we've found uh, over 4,000 exoplanets wow. going around lots of stars. Mm. So that's a, a massive proliferation in the number of planets that we know about in our galaxy. And Lisa herself was part of a team that recently discovered a new planet, is that right? Yes, they've discovered a planet with the snappy name of GJ357D. <laughs> I hope they're yeah. working on that one. Yeah, I think maybe they need to kind of come up with a more memorable name than that. <laughs> but um, it's a very interesting planet because it's a rocky planet like our own and it could have liquid water on it. Wow. And where you can have liquid water, there's a possibility of life. Hmm. And the focus of Lisa's work and the thrust of her piece is about how we would determine whether a planet, which is many light years away, whether we could determine whether it has life or not. So there's a possibility that life exists on this planet that has evolved in a completely different direction to ours. Yeah, the aim is to see if there are signs that life could have evolved on this world. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I was really moved in both pieces by sort of how honest you need to be as a researcher or a scientist and how like you can't really have too much of an ego about something because it can so easily be disproved by new information. Yeah, exactly. And even here, Lisa Kaltenegger's piece, she was talking about how like we don't even know what conditions are needed for life to start. We know that there has to be water, but we really don't know much more than that. And that feels like sort of humbling. Well, I think if you talk to scientists or indeed any academic, you would find that there's a a lot of ego kicking around in these (laughs) environments. But nevertheless, I think, yes, to be a good scientist, you must have to have a degree of humility because you're constantly having to adapt your theories to the facts that you discover. Well, uh, this fascinating series is all on FT.com. Chris Stringer's piece has been up and Lisa's will be up in a few days' time. So, Neville, thank you so much for joining us. This is a real pleasure. Likewise for me. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode and we'd love it if you continued the conversation with us on Twitter. You can find the podcast at FT Culture Call or you can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. So if you like what you hear, uh, we'd love if you shared this with your friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. We will be back in two weeks' time with the writer Gia Tolentino. I can't wait for that. Very excited. Very. So we have been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by David Waters with production assistance from Eileen Rodriguez. And our music is composed by Fatten. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.